Chapter 3 Amanda Grayson and Sarek were fiercely protective of their children in a way that was excessive even on Vulcan. They were known for it, for the way Sarek tolerated no slights against his son who would never follow the teachings of Sarek and the son who was only half Vulcan. They have good reason. Neither Cybok nor Spock were easy to come by. Cybok was born Chiav, the byproduct of a casual encounter Sarek had a year before he went to Earth, and met and married Amanda. His mother, Terea, was a southern Vulcan who went on to become a master of Gaul when Shiav turned three. At that point, she had him sent to the Vulcan embassy on Earth, where Sarek and Amanda were living. There were paternity tests and fraught legal battles, interplanetary issues because the children had been transported from one planet and abandoned on another, and the only reason it didn't become an incident was that Sarek was the ambassador. Cybok, three, abandoned and inconsolable, had refused contact or food. Amanda took a sabbatical from UCSF's linguistics department to stay home and try to coax the will to live back into Cybok, whose empathetic abilities were at the highest testable levels. Sarek scaled back his activities, citing family emergencies so frequently to Pow nearly removed him from the position. It was a year before Sarek was able to formalize his custody, and three months beyond that for Amanda to finalize the adoption. Cybok, who was refusing to respond to Shiav, was renamed something more traditional. When Cybok was five, they moved back to Vulcan, and things settled. Spock, however, often suspected that the reason his parents tried for so long to have another child was that they wanted to give Cybok a feeling of family and permanence. Spock was, more or less, an accident, inasmuch as genetically engineered babies can be. When Spock turned six, his parents deemed him advanced enough to understand the data and showed him the process. He had looked at hollows and pads, and Cybok had helped to walk him through the trickier technical language, while his mother translated it into what it had meant for her body, for Spock's. He listened intently as Cybok, then fourteen, explained how Spock survived initial implantation and then was removed after only twenty days, how he was monitored in a test tube for sixty-five days, while a team of Vulcan and Terran bioengineers and pediatric surgeons worked constantly to chemically and genetically engineer him. At the end of it, he was placed back into Amanda's body, where there was a 14% chance he would reattach to the uterine wall. He did, though, and stayed in her body for eight and a half months until he was delivered and put into an incubator. It was as far as they'd ever gotten before, and there was very little hope, but Spock survived. Against impossible, daunting odds, Spock survived. He had been their last attempt, Amanda told him, looking at all the ultrasounds and images of the children who never were. There had been seven years of hormone therapy, and she had suffered four late-term miscarriages. They had agreed, as a family, to stop after one last attempt. It was too risky. The medication and radiation was starting to cause hemophilia and damage to her bones. But that last attempt had been Spock who had fought to live, and had managed it. When Spock is angry with his mother for being overprotective, he tried to remember this, that it took his parents seven long years and countless disappointments to have him, that they had spent a year not knowing whether or not Cybok was going to be taken from them on a whim. He could understand why his mother so fiercely guarded him, and was so afraid of Jim, but the transition to Vulcan was not made easier by understanding the motivations. It still felt a betrayal, arbitrary and petty. Jim was twelve and could hardly be that great a threat. Worse, all the things he had missed seemed foreign when before him. 
It was as though he had recreated them in his mind, like a painter might reconstruct a landscape. But when confronted with the reality, one remembered the sharpest edges. He spent the summer relearning the terrain of Vulcan, venturing out into the forge under the excruciating sun, traveling into the city and remembering what it felt like to enter buildings which hung down rather than extending up, to go into buildings where there was a murmur of conversation rather than a deafening wave of speech overlaid with terrible popular music. He spent hours in school, sliding down into the pod that would be his, trying to reacquaint himself with this technique of learning. So much of it was mass memorization, dependent on speed and ability to multitask while performing in dead silence. There were no teachers, merely observers who walked the paths above the pods and intervened only when absolutely necessary. The point is to throw information at you and make you memorize whole books while standing for four-hour stretches, break for a nutritious lunch that tastes like fucking shit, and then do it again, until it's time to go home, where you're expected to engage in several hours of physical exercise to maintain a bang and bod, Cybok explained one day, sitting at the top of the pod. Cybok had taken to sitting at the top of Spock's pod and making unhelpful comments as he worked on his thesis. Slybok was wearing one of the sweaters their mother knit them when she was feeling particularly hateful, and he seemed to have gone out of his way to look nothing like a Vulcan. He had his hair carefully styled, and seemed to be entertaining the idea of facial hair. Spock had serious doubts about Cybok's ability to carry off facial hair. Well, Cybok amended, some days you get independent study. I mean, it's all about time management. No one uses the phrase bang and bod, Spock told him, eyes still fixed on the equation before him. To his left, he was being lectured on ethics. Your idioms require updating. Incorrect. The computer chimed at him. Cybok laughed, and Spock looked up and glared at him, stepping forward to shut the power down and look up at his brother again. At twenty, Cybok was still very young, but Spock doubted somehow that this would be a phase. Cybok was going to spend the rest of his life trying to drag their people towards a middle ground between their history of violence and their present passivity. He had such dreams of social reform. Spock had no such aspirations, and lately found his eyes wandering to the skies, his interests curving towards astrophysics. He supposed it was more appropriate than social reform by Vulcan standards. Still, I scarcely pass as a Vulcan, he admitted low. Father, Hess indicated he believes things would be easier for me were I to adjust my behavior to fall in line with the mores of Vulcan culture. Well, Spock, he's not wrong. It'd be easier. And you're not used to it, so it might be. Cybox trailed off as he searched for appropriate phrasing, fingers skimming the air as though they will help him find the words. Cybox was endlessly, easily tactile. You're kind of like the single member of a race, first and last of your kind. He paused to smile, pleased at his own turn of phrase. Did you worry so much on Earth? Spock thought about it. He could dimly remember feeling overwhelmed and bereft, but he did not remember how much of that was due to the move, and how much of that was true loneliness. It was long enough ago now that he couldn't trust his own memory. Regardless, there had only been two weeks before he met Jim, and Spock had never been lonely after knowing Jim. In contrast, he had now been on Vulcan for near three months, and he severely doubted that anyone was about to drag him off to participate in whatever the Vulcan equivalent of killing toy soldiers would be. I was younger then, Spock said finally because it was the only way he could think to answer the question truthfully without inviting Cybok's further investigation. But you didn't worry about not fitting in, Cybok pressed. Spock sighed. Cybok never did know how to leave well enough alone. That sentence was terrible, Spock observed lightly. 
Spock. No, no, I did not think it a cause for concern. But Earth does not have set coming-of-age traditions which I had not participated in, and no one knew of me that I was aware of. I have been greeted by name no less than seven times on campus, and the year has not begun. It had been unnerving. You've got to get a chip on your shoulder, Cybok decided, the cadence of the expression suggesting he was quoting something. Spock exhaled quietly, glancing around to make sure they were truly alone. What if I cannot do this? he asked. Even Cybok, wildly unpredictable and unorthodox, was a noted scholar and a student of the Vulcan Science Academy. He could, if he wanted, go into the southern deserts and find people like him, who rejected the ideas of Surak and used contractions which made everyone else's ears bleed. If Spock was incapable of excelling academically, he had no clear idea of how he would survive on Vulcan. On Earth, Spock was more Vulcan than the Terrans, and it was enough. But Vulcan's best and worst-kept secret was its xenophobia, and Spock was a walking example of how that was ignored. And he had no Jim Kirk here to force his peers into acceptance, to run interference and distract from the oddity that Spock understood himself to be. Jim had carved out a space for Spock, which had fit him perfectly, grew with him, and endured even in Jim's absence. It had been Spock's place to claim, and he had owned it, and would perhaps have occupied it without Jim. But here he had none of that. He was an outlier, and his ally was sixteen light-years away. "'You are doing it,' Slabak pointed out, instead of telling Spock it was illogical to dwell on the what-ifs. Spock looked at him. "'I am, at best, feigning. How can I? I am not like them. I never undertook the Kanwas, and now I am too old.' He remembered vaguely that Slabak undertook it initially, and then wandered back a day later, demanding to know whether their parents were aware of how hot the forge was. No one had expected Cybok to complete it, and Spock seemed to recall that his parents were surprised when Cybok had expressed his intentions to attempt the Conwas. It was a shared coming-of-age experience, a cultural touchstone, and Spock was even more an outcast for not having experienced it. Yeah, no one really does that anymore. I mean, you can, and people will talk about it, but there's been an increase in the Lamatya population, and most parents think it's not really worth bragging rights to have their kid killed. Logic before all things. Besides, you must have done an Earth equivalent. Cut school or stayed out all night or something? Yes, but those are hardly... You cut school? Cybok interrupted, staring at him incredulously. Spock looked up at him, and wondered what his brother saw of him when he looked. If he thought that Spock had no part in the events which led to their relocation to Vulcan. Jim's mother died, Spock said defensive. Then he considered and admitted... I was unaware that that was the reason at the time, however. So you just... Spock, my whole perspective of you just changed, Cybok told him earnestly, hand pressed to his chest. You are significantly more of a rebel. You're kind of a badass. Spock lifted an eyebrow at him, unimpressed, and Cybok laughed, scooting aside so Spock could climb out of the pod. You'll be fine, Cybok said, helping him up and heading for the transport with him. Fine has variable definitions. Yeah, you'll be fine. Despite their efforts, none of his family's support and advice adequately prepared Spock for the reality of being treated as an experiment, as an interesting lab result. There were oddly patronizing glances and vast condescension, and Spock bristled under it. He watched Cybok, who returned scathing and tactless comments with utmost compassion and wide, effusive smiles. Frequent comments of, 
Let me share your pain. Slybock reveled in the attention, and had found a peer group willing to accept him, who watched him with tolerantly raised eyebrows. Tiaris, his bondmate, was often scathingly rebuking, but also content to allow him to press a kiss to her palm. It was almost enough to give Spock hope. However, as the first semester drew to a close, Spock had come to understand what a false hope that had been. He had proven his academic ability, of that there was no question, but he was as alone as the day he had arrived, and far lonelier than he had ever been. He tried to take some sort of strength from his solitude, but found no serenity in it. He meditated long hours, and could not banish his anger. He was slow to forgive his peers, who seemed most intent to pick fights, test the limits of his emotional control, and remembered acutely every slight. Anger was an emotion, though he thought, sometimes it was the most important emotion Terence possessed. It fueled them through despair and forced survival in impossible odds. It seemed sometimes that the only options were to despair or get angry, and Spock did not have it in him to despair. He knew his family was concerned. Amanda reached out to him more frequently, afraid he was not receiving enough contact, and his father invited him to do his schoolwork in Sarek's study as he worked. Cybok hovered at the edge of Spock's consciousness when he could be rested from his own work, though the closer it came to publication, the less aware Cybok was of anything. As break started, it occurred to Spock that he had not spoken with Jim in five months. He reached for his pad as the dry, chilled breeze slipped in his window. He got up and shut it before settling at the head of his bed. I miss you, he sent before he could think better of it. I'm obviously amazing without you. Jim replied instantly, and Spock felt something shake loose in his chest, burn in his throat. Relief, he thought, and perhaps gratitude. He could not have blamed Jim if Jim had ignored him the way Spock had ignored Jim, however unintentionally. How is Riverside? Still standing, I think. You think? He felt insufficient levels of alarm at that. I'm in China. Spock frowned down at the pad curiously and then pressed the call button. Jim's face popped up, flushed and squinting in bright sunlight. His freckles were dark across his nose and forehead, and his hair sun-bleached. China, Spock said, interrogative. He had never seen much of Earth, despite his father being the Vulcan ambassador to the planet. He had seen San Francisco, and Riverside, and New York City, and once London. His mother took him to Seattle a few times, so he could see where she grew up but he was aware he had only been permitted to see a very small part of the planet, and none of its diversity. I wanted to see it. I'm on the wall. Look, Jim said, turning the camera around so that Spock could, in a vertigo-inducing sweep, see the Great Wall of China and the Chinese landscape around it. A pink blur resolved into Jim's grinning face. Cool, right? How are you financing that? Spock asked, lifting an eyebrow, and Jim just grinned at him. Check your account lately? Spock sighed, but on balance supposed he'd rather be the financier than have Jim arrested for credit fraud. He imagined that to be a federal offense, at the very least, and he had no pull with anyone outside of Washington County, Iowa. Someday you will get arrested, and it will stick. But it is not this day, Jim said. Where else have I taken you? Spock asked, wondering what he had been missing while he was miserable on Vulcan. Jim grinned at him. Nowhere off planet, Jim said, and then told Spock about Brazil and Kenya and Iran, about Ireland and Mexico and Russia and Palestine. 
Spock stayed up the entire night listening to Jim talk, and when he was yawning hard enough that his jaw popped, Jim laughed and told him he should probably sleep at some point. Spock made a lazy sound of agreement, shifting and watching as Jim disappeared from view. I, We should not go so long without speaking, Spock said, because it was true and he did not want the responsibility to be only his. He wanted Jim to talk to him, to invade his life again, and fill up the spaces that had been left empty, waiting. He did not want to feel as though he was constantly begging for Jim's attention. We should run away and be space pirates, Jim said, coming back into view in pajamas. He slid into bed and put the pad on something, the other pillow or the bedside table. His hotel room was sparse but well-maintained, and Spock wondered how much it was setting him back. He would check the accounts later, tell his parents it was a charitable donation. It was technically true. Spock thought he was the only Vulcan who skirted his inability to lie so finely. My parents would cut me off, and we would have no way of funding our life of piracy, Spock pointed out, laying down and propping his own pad up on his bedside table. It was almost like being in the same place, crawled on their sides and facing each other, and the ache of missing him was almost physical. Spock, Jim sighed, exasperatedly, and clearly not as preoccupied with melancholy thoughts. We would be pirates. Pirates steal shit. Ergo, we would not need your parents. Ergo, Spock repeated, amused. Fuck you. I have the vocabulary of a criminal mastermind. Good night, Jim, Spock said, and Jim laughed. Good night, Spock. This was, he reflected, as he settled further into the bed, was why Jim was imperative. Everyone thought Spock was the calming influence, the mitigating force, but they had no idea how Spock was reined in by Jim, how necessary Jim was to Spock's ability to maintain even a facade of calm. He did not shut down his pad, and instead closed his eyes against the pale light of morning and let the sound of Jim's breath evening out lull him to sleep. A week later, Jim was back in Riverside with the terse note, Fucked. We'll send out SOS if need cavalry. Spock supposed he should have thought sooner that something was strange, that Frank would not have indulged in Jim's wanderlust so easily. Spock relearned how to be comfortable with only his family for company. His father was traveling more for work, perhaps more comfortable doing so now that Spock had settled. His mother was organizing a series of protests, and petitioning the Federation to stop the colonization of Tarsus IV. Beyond the ionic field, which is going to make communication impossible, she complained, as she cooked dinner, Spock slicing vegetables beside her. This was familiar, and his mother had never believed in censoring her speech over much for him. There was no subject that was off-limits. They're giving command to Mikhail Kodos. Do you know what his dissertation was on? She demanded. Eugenics, Spock supplied, wondering how much more stress the wooden spoon could take before it fractured. Exactly, Amanda said, glaring at the sizzling contents of the wok she had brought with them from Earth. Their kitchen was littered with Terran cooking implements, as his mother said that Vulcan had contributed much, but their culinary supplies were lacking. Cybok had theories that Terrans had so many tools for food because they were hedonists. Their mother had never disputed it. And, she said, it'd be one thing if you read it and were like, okay, this guy isn't going to do anything morally dubious, and he was looking into the psychology of it, and he came out the other side condemning it. But he didn't, okay? He didn't. He came out practically... She bit off whatever she was going to say, shaking her head. It's because he's in that old boys' club. They all know each other, and it's practically a circle. She cut herself off again. Jerk, 
Spock supplied. And she laughed, wrapping her arms around his shoulder and pressing a kiss to his cheek, fond and a little embarrassed. Don't tell your father you know that expression, she said. But yes, okay, it's a circle jerk, and anyone who says anything must be overreacting and should go back into their corner and shut up and let the big boys handle shit, because God forbid we want someone who, you know, seems trustworthy in charge of this. But... She continued as she scooped up the vegetables and threw them in, gesturing with an elbow for Spock to set the table. This is all happening so fast. It's only about four months to settlement, and they just... If there's nothing to hide, why is this being so rushed? No one else is fighting for the planet. It's just... It's just a rock, not particularly special in any way, and it's not even advantageous to colonize it because there's a more valuable resource close by. You think they have not done adequate research? I think that they've probably done everything very by the book, and that this settlement isn't any different than the dozens that have gone before it, she said, sighing as she lifted the wok off the fire and set it on the table, rubbing her forehead. But the people who are behind it are the same people, and there's no diversification of opinions, no outside groups brought in to consult, and homogeny and groupthink are incredibly dangerous things. Spock looked down at the stir-fry she put on his plate. Starfleet is in charge of that. No, the Federation is in charge of it. If Starfleet was in charge, this bullshit wouldn't be happening. His mother disagreed, taking a bite and then wincing at the heat, gulping her water. Starfleet is much more diverse than the Federation. They have far more fail-safes and far more opportunity for flaws to be brought forward. In fact, when Starfleet originally discovered the planet, they categorized it as unfit for colonization due to its ionic field. She sighed. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Maybe I'll have overreacted. You wish to overreact? He asked, genuinely bemused. The alternative is that I'm right and they just put a Machiavellian eugenics theorist in charge of a planet with an ionic field that renders regular communication impossible. Spock tilted his head in acknowledgement. I see. Still, while the consequences of her being correct would be horrific, true, they would not be her fault, and he could not imagine preferring to be incorrect. Jim's pad had been confiscated when he returned from his trips abroad. A well-meaning judge agreed to put a monitor on Jim's ankle, which prevented him from leaving Riverside, and sent officers after him when he was out past eight. Spock found this out because after two weeks of silence, he contacted Officer Kyoblik, the woman who had been on duty after the car crash two years ago. She was more than happy to tell him that while Jim was angry, and they had a local betting pool going on when the old Kirk place was going to burn to the ground, because one of those two finally lost his head, Jim was fine. Spock came away somewhat less than reassured. She spent a lot of time telling him that Jim's behavioral problems were partly genetic, and supported that claim with anecdotal evidence featuring his parents. Spock doubted the validity of her premise, but if this was what Jim was enduring, constant comparison to his parents, Spock could understand why the problem persisted unabated. It was two more months before Spock received any kind of communication, and when he did, he wished against all logic that he had not. Going to Tarsus Four. Aw, yeah. There were two more months until the shuttle departed for Tarsus Four. Spock spent hours after school in his pod, trying to find a way to circumvent natural ionic cloud dampening and communication. He read Codus's articles and attempted to find what manner of execution he might favor. Executions covered up by a rumor of some sort of pestilence, a voice behind him said. Spock turned to find Ston, son of Tyree, behind him. He might favor mass execution in theory, 
but his resources on the colony will be limited, Stahn continued. They will, however, be divided into sectors related to the type of work they will supply. It would be simple to claim that everyone in a certain sector has fallen ill, while the truth is that he has his forces kill them in the night. It would take a great deal of time to effect that, and would likely require some kind of excuse. My calculations indicate that if colonization is successful, he will do nothing, but if there is some kind of illness, whether botanical or animal, there is a 93.43 probability that he will, in fact, attempt some kind of eugenics-directed genocide. There are 4,000 colonists. At least half will die. It was nothing that Spock had not surmised himself. Stahn tilted his head. You have a personal interest. My, a friend from Earth is going to Tarsus, to be part of the initial colonization, Spock said. I see, Stahn said. You are attempting to circumvent the ionic cloud. Yes. Have you read Rosen Vendee's latest work? It is on my list, Spock said. They raise an interesting hypothesis that one might be able to utilize the clouds to amplify communication into space. Spock lifted an eyebrow. Fascinating. They produce several interesting lab results, and currently there is a team on Illyria attempting to duplicate them. How close are they? Several years, Stahn said. He paused, looking at Spock, and then said, I am pursuing my own experiments. Another pair of hands would be advantageous. Stahn was from a high council family, and was highly spoken of. He was all angles and very tall, and he had never spoken to Spock before. Spock wondered if this was how Vulcan children made friends. Thank you, Spock said. I would be interested. Spock and Stahn started spending their independent study times together in the laboratories. Stahn was surprisingly easy to talk to, and he did not seem offended when Spock was quicker to grasp the more technical aspects of their experiments. Spock, despite himself, found he liked Stahn. Of course, through Stahn, Spock was reintroduced to Tepring, who came to fetch Stahn one evening when their experiments had kept them late. "'You are late,' she said, standing in the doorway." Stahn's head snapped up with such violent haste, Spock feared for him momentarily. We are on the verge of a breakthrough. It is illogical to stop and break the momentum, Stahn told her. Tepring lifted a graceful eyebrow and stepped further into the lab, shutting the door behind her. Spock, she said, inclining her head slightly, an acknowledgment of their bonding, perhaps. Tepring, he said, matching her tone. She watched Stahn with something vaguely proprietary in her eyes and Stahn's emotional control was not so great that the back of his neck did not flush a dull green. "'I did not know you were following the establishment of the Tarsus IV colony,' Tepring commented, looking at Stahn's pad and then at their data sets. "'You are attempting to disrupt an ionic cloud?' "'Circumvent,' Spock corrected. "'The shuttle's left tomorrow. So far only concentrated data bursts would get through, which Starfleet would be aiding every month. Starfleet would check in every six months.' It was too much time unsupervised. You referred to the concern that Mikhail Kodos will affect some kind of genocide based upon his background in historical eugenics, Tepring surmised. I would remind you both that it is unlikely he will be able to affect a type of eugenics policy with the constant monitoring of Starfleet. Attempt to remember you are Vulcan and engage your higher reasoning faculties. It is unlikely, but not impossible, Stahn told her, and given previous case studies, it would not even pose great difficulty. He has been a model citizen, she said, picking up a spanner idly. Or he has never been caught, Spock said. 
She looked at him, and he felt her mind brush against his curiously. "'You appear to have a personal motivator,' she observed, in the damning way Spock was becoming accustomed to. "'Terran friend of his is one of the colonists,' Ston told her, turning back to the data. "'Personal investment is an excellent motivator. It also clouds one's judgment,' T'Pring pointed out. "'He is not attempting to defuse a bomb,' Ston said. "'Interest in a subject matter is not judged on whether or not the interest is academic.' personal or passing. He has a personal motivator. That does not render his interest any less valid. Tepring lifted her eyebrow at him, and then looked at Spock. Where do you require assistance? she asked. The first several weeks were filled with notes from Jim, at least once daily, with absolutely nothing capitalized, because Jim was a terrible human being, but at least he was punctuating. The sky is always gray, Various shades of gray. It's complete balls, and the sunlight is more like moonlight. Nancy is cool, but I swear to God she's an idiot. I miss really terrible shows. Also, days without rain. The sky is so clear at night, I swear you could see the entire universe. Can you see me waving? Send me a care package. Include condoms. And chocolate. Staying with Kodos. Apparently, he thought my dad was the shit. There was nothing of any real substance, but they started coming with more and more regularity, and they became more and more light-hearted, and Spock thought all his concern, all his mother's concern, had been for nothing. Things were fine. Jim seemed happy. And for that, if nothing else, Spock wanted the entire venture to be a success. Then he realized that he was getting these regularly outside of the data bursts. Tepring looked at him when he slid into her pod after a lunch, handing her his pad. He did it, Spock told her. He did what? she asked, wiping his pad off with her sleeve. Fingerprints apparently bothered her beyond the telling of it. He is somehow circumventing the ionic cloud. I am requesting your assistance in determining how he has done this. Tepring looked at him for a long time, her dark eyes staring into his, her mind brushing against his mind. He allowed her to see that this was a genuine request. Tepring's familiarity with the various programming languages, as well as her skill, made her a highly sought-after candidate for the VSA already, and she had recently co-authored a paper ripping to shreds the latest security firewalls put in place by the Federation. She turned on the pad. "'Your mind does not recognize mine,' she said. "'A propos of nothing.' "'What?' he asked leaning against the ladder and wondering if it would be worth the hassle to get something to eat. The bonding we underwent as children. The link is not there. I had wondered if it was the distance which prevented me from sensing you, but I do not feel your presence in my mind, even when you are near. I do not feel you in mine, he acknowledged. She nodded thoughtfully. Perhaps you are incapable of it. I do not think that is the case, he said, because he had given this some thought. There had been speculation about whether Spock, as a hybrid, would be able to accomplish a bonding. Since returning to Vulcan, he was more aware of that speculation than ever. It would seem highly improbable, given my skill in the realm of telepathy, that I would be incapable of a bonding. Then we were ill-suited, she decided, unbothered, as her fingers flew over the screen of the pad. Which is perhaps just as well, Spock said. You are insinuating something, she said, looking up and lifting her eyebrows. Tepring had fine, delicate bone structure, and she was beautiful by most aesthetic standards. She was dangerously intelligent, 
and her adherence to the teachings of Surak were exemplary. She came from an excellent family, and would one day be a great asset to Vulcan. It was logical, then, that Ston was so besotted. Ston is very fond of you, Spock said. It is illogical to focus on one person at this stage, she dismissed, looking back down at the pad. Premarital bonding is illogical, he asked, and she twitched, irritation at him for finding flaw in her reasoning. I am only attempting to understand your logic, he said, as innocently as he could manage. I cannot work on this when you are distracting me, she informed him, and sat down to hunch over his pad. If she had been anyone else, he would have called it a sulk. Go fetch us lunch. He did not. Several hours later, she conceded that she was not making any progress, and Ston brought them sandwiches, and they spoke of things that did not include genocide or lost friends. Spock, instead, attempted to explain how Terran schools worked, while the other two gave him looks which were not nearly as blank as they likely hoped. He took great pleasure in explaining the concept of group projects to T'Pring. Ston, he had noticed, was good with other people, but T'Pring was a force of nature, bowling over everyone in her path. He thought she and Jim might get along well, or they would kill each other. He shared that with Jim, along with a photo. The response he got was not quite along the lines he expected. Hey, can you find out what this is? Download attachment. Spock opened the file and looked at the plant with a strange reddish-gold fungus on its roots. Yes, are you all right? He sent back. I'm having second thoughts about how smart everyone is. Apparently it didn't occur to them to ask for help, and like, no one has a pad except me. Jim was capitalizing. That alone was disturbing. On his lunch break and during his independent study time, Spock searched the various databases publicly available, and Ston attempted to do a reverse image search while T'Pring continued to attempt to discover how Jim was sending Spock messages. Sitting at the base of Spock's pod, legs curled under her and frowning down at the pad. After 45 minutes of fruitless searches, Spock took his pad back and tried to remember how Jim had shown him to get into Starfleet's databases. He knew, even if he remembered, it was possible they had identified the weakness and rectified it, but he could think of nothing else. That is illegal, Ston told him. It is illogical to keep this information from the public, T'Pring said, unexpectedly coming to Spock's defense. He looked over his shoulder at her. That argument will not hold up in a court of law. Then we will ensure we are not caught, T'Pring said, and Spock was unexpectedly warmed by the plural pronoun. And if they are so stupid as to leave a very obvious back door open, then they cannot entirely blame us for making use of it. That is it, Ston said, several minutes of scrolling later. Fungi is open. It was commonly found on starships that had traveled through the Metalli system and was harmless to the ship, but toxic to any plant life encountered. Evidently, it was originally thought to be a tool of bioterrorism until its origins were discovered. Spock copied the blurb and pasted it into a message, sending it back. And then he waited. He was grateful to T'Pring and Ston, who offered a kind of solidarity. They occupied that time trying to gain remote access to Jim's pad, and not worrying because worrying was illogical. Spock might have been concerned, but that, T'Pring told him, was permissible. You are not Vulcan, she told him, and Spock let it pass, because arguing with her on this was fruitless. He suspected that he and T'Pring had found a truce specifically because she did not view him as Vulcan. T'Pring viewed him as his own species, similar to Romulans, and that there was a common ancestry there, but culturally there was a disparity. Ston, however, 
did not share Spock's acceptance of Dupring's interpretation of Spock's racial identification, and took every opportunity available to attempt to eradicate her xenophobia. They made a competition out of their schoolwork, and Dupring made Spock come with her to help her select a pet sahlat. The response came late at night, on the 94th day, while Spock was idly monitoring newsfeed in bed. Hey Spock, remember when we used to play? You're right, but so was I. For several long moments there was nothing. His mind was blank, and then he could not move fast enough. He shoved the covers aside and slammed the door of his room in his haste, tearing across the house to his father's study. Spock, what? Cybok began, coming out of his own room, and Spock shoved him aside, booting up the direct line to his father's office on Earth. Ambassador Sarek of Vulcan's line, how may I? I must speak with my father, Spock told the assistant, who blinked at him, then glanced over her shoulder. Wait a sec, she said, and the hollow display was the Vulcan embassy's emblem for several long moments. Spock could barely stay still, knowing that Cybok was standing in the doorway, watching him curiously, but not saying anything. Thankfully not saying anything. Their mother was asleep upstairs. Sarek came into view, and Spock wasted no time on greetings. Tarsus Four is suffering from an outbreak of fungi asopin, and I have reason to believe that rather than sending out a distress signal, the governor is putting into effect a genocide. Sarek's eyebrows lifted involuntarily, before smoothing again. And what prompts these allegations? Spock pulled up the communications from Jim, the images, the screen captures of messages notifying colonists of an outbreak of the flu, the evidence of lack of influenza but clear evidence of starvation. Put together it was damning. His father was a brilliant man. He had put it all together in less than a minute. I do not understand this reference, Sarek told him, indicating Jim's last message. I used to tell him that he did not play, he committed genocide on his toys, and he always insisted that there was a no-win scenario. We would fight about the philosophy of it, Spock replied, and looked up at Cybok, who was standing in the doorway, watching, not looking at Spock as though he was crazy. It was fortifying. Spock turned back to their father. Father, it is imperative that Starfleet send someone to check. The next scheduled check-in is in. No communications from Tarsus Four have been managed for months, Sarek said slowly. The ionic cloud makes it nearly impossible. Is it possible that you are being misled? This is Jim, and he is in trouble. I have had regular communication from him since he arrived, though we do not know how he is circumventing the ionic cloud. However, prior to this message, it has been ninety days, Spock said. I am asking for your help. If everything is fine, then fine, I will apologize and kill Jim. But I do not think either of those will transpire. Still, his father hesitated. Mom had misgivings from the start, Cybok said gently, standing behind Spock and drawing their father's attention. And Spock's not usually this excited about anything, and if the kid managed to hack through an ionic field to ask for help, and you don't do anything? I'll never forgive you, let alone Spock. Sarek looked between them, Cybok's concern went large on his face, and Spock trying to seem pulled together, reasonable, worth believing. All right, he said standing. It will take several days to convene an emergency hearing, and then to find a starship that could go. Contact Captain Christopher Pike, Spock interrupted, pulling up his contact information and sending it to his father. He was George Kirk's friend, and wrote his dissertation on Kirk's heroism during the Calvin disaster, spoke at Winona Kirk's funeral. Terrans are swayed by emotion. He will go for Jim, even without a mandate from Starfleet. Sarek touched his desk briefly, as though about to say something. But in the end, he only nodded and disconnected the transmission, 
leaving Cybok and Spock alone in his study, shoulder to shoulder. Get out of my head, Cybok, Spock instructed, feeling the well-meaning but overbearing pressure of his brother trying to alleviate some of his concern. He could not bear to be indoors any longer. He walked around the desk and stepped out into their father's balcony, looking out over Shikar. You really think something is up? Cybok asked quietly. Jim is many things, many unfavorable things, but he is not a liar, and that was a plea for help. Spock was fluent in the way Jim asked for help. Spock listened to Jim once as he hurtled towards death, and he had perfected the dialect sense. He could hear it coming now, knew what to say when, always a variation on jump, but this was Jim screaming for help, begging for it. Spock had never been able to not respond to Jim, and Spock could tell Jim to jump, but this time there would be nothing to catch him. This time Jim knew to jump, and this time it was Spock's responsibility to make sure that he landed safely, was caught. He knew that Cybok was aware of Jim, knew now that Jim was the reason their parents moved Spock away from Earth, and likely had formed unflattering opinions of Jim. Still, Cybok's hand folded over Spock's and squeezed, pulling him into the kitchen as Cybok brewed them tea. "'You're really worried about him,' Cybok observed. "'He is my friend,' Spock said. He had no idea how to explain this to Cybok, who had always had friends, had them still, people to talk to and turn to. Spock was not his brother. He tolerated some people, liked fewer. Ston and T'Pring were the closest thing he had to friends on Vulcan, but he would rather call them peers or companions. "'He was a dick to you. Mom hates him.' Mom doesn't hate anyone, not even to Pow, Cybok pointed out. He is less of a dick to me than he is to anyone else, Spock replied, and Cybok laughed, surprised, and handed him a mug of tea. Spock wrapped his fingers around it, letting the heat seep into his fingers. He is my friend, not hers. I do not require that she like him. Cybok lifted his eyebrows. You know he's going to be fine, right? Father will be impressive, and Captain Pike will come to the rescue, and... This is life, Cybok, not a novel or some Terran movie. Spock felt he ought to be congratulated on his emotional control. You need to start having some faith, Spock. I prefer to be pleasantly surprised, Spock told him. Having faith was too frightening. He went to school as usual, though Amanda offered to let him stay home. It was illogical to stay and worry when he could do nothing. On the third day, Cybok slid down into Spock's pod, tumbling over his robes. He was pale and trembling, hair askew, and Spock was reaching for him before he finished the conscious thought. Cybok tilted his face up, giving, always giving, and let Spock fall into his mind. James T. Kirk among the survivors. No response from any relatives. 17.23% of the population murdered. Kodos in secured custody. Wife pregnant. Divorcing him. Conspiracy. Inquiry to be held. Jim is alive, Spock. Alive. Spock wrenched away, fighting for air and any kind of control. He was aware they had an audience. San Francisco Starfleet Med Center. Cybok said. You have a shuttle, Spock said. Why? Cybok gave Spock a look, which spoke eloquently of his sorrows at Spock's inability to know his own mind. Because you need to see him, 